Well, this morning, as you can see in your bulletin there, we are taking a break from 1 Peter. I want to just take a Sunday and address what is going on in our world today. As many of you, unless you're living under a rock, turn on the news and you see what's going on in Israel today, that there is a war that has broken out in Israel. I'm here to tell you this morning, I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. And so my intentions this morning is not to lay out the end times for you or to help you understand there's no maps that are going to appear or charts that are going to appear up here as to how all the things are going to happen and how everything's going to be laid out in the end times. I'm not here to do that this morning. But to help you understand biblically why, when we turn on the news today, Israel is under attack. I want us to have a biblical worldview, a biblical understanding of this. And so we're going to be in Psalm 83. The title of this sermon this morning is A Prayer of Protection When Enemies Attack. On May 28th, 1967, the President of the United Arab Republic, or essentially what we know of today as Egypt, said this, We plan to open a general assault on Israel. This will be total war. Our basic aim is the destruction of Israel. This is what began what we know of as the Six-Day War. Jordan and Syria, Iraq, Algeria, Sudan, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Morocco joined the United Arab Republic in an attempt to wipe out Israel. But they were unsuccessful. In six days, the war was over and Israel was the victor. They won. And as you know by now, last Saturday, Hamas, an Islamic terrorist group based in Gaza, launched an attack against Israel and killed more than 1,300 people. As we saw from Israel's prime minister, Israel then declared war. For the past eight days, Israel has been at war with Hamas and has launched thousands of rockets into Gaza in order to destroy their enemy and defend themselves. But war in Israel is not something new. In fact, this has been something that has gone on throughout the entire history of Israel. Both in the ancient world and in our modern world. And so what is this all about? What is going on with Israel? Why are so many people after Israel and the Jews? Well, if we understand our Bibles, we understand that this is not just an attack on a land or on a people. This is actually an attack on God. We read from Genesis 15 this morning in our Scripture reading where we saw the promise that God gave to Abraham. 
God gave him a promise that he would have numerous descendants who would possess the land that God had promised him. God made a promise. But does Satan want God to be known as a covenant-keeping God? No. So what does he want to do? Take out Israel. You see, an attack against Israel is an all-out attack against God. Because if God's promise is not fulfilled, then God is not a promise-keeping God. He is not who He says He is, and therefore He is not the one true God. So what is going on in Israel is not just an attack on the Jews, although it is. This is an attack against God. As we're going to see, Psalm 83 confirms this for us. In fact, one of my Old Testament professors in seminary, Dr. Bill Barrick, he titles this psalm as this. Enemies of God's people are God's enemies. Enemies of God's people are God's enemies. The enemies of God want to take out God's people as we're going to see here in this psalm this morning. And so if you haven't already, please take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 83. And let me read our text for us. Psalm 83. A song, a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And O God, do not be still. For behold, your enemies have an uproar. And those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, Come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom... And the Ishmaelites, Moab, and the Hagrites, Gabal, and Ammon, and Amalek, Philistia, with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined with them. They have become a help to the children of Lot. Selah. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin, and the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. O my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever and let them be humiliated and perish. 
that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Now, what is the context of this psalm? What are the circumstances that surround it? Well, there are times when an author of a psalm will let us know the context of a psalm and let us know why he wrote it or what the context is in which he is writing the psalm. For example, in Psalm 51, it tells us at the beginning of the psalm, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. The context there in that psalm is David. When David, after David had sinned with Bathsheba. And therefore we see there in Psalm 51, David's cry for God to forgive him of his sin that he had committed against God with Bathsheba. And so you can see the context there in Psalm 51. It tells us what the context is. But notice at the beginning of Psalm 83, it says this, a song, a psalm of Asaph. This, therefore, was written to be sung by Israel as a song, and it was written by Asaph. Now, who is Asaph? Well, he was a Levite musician that David had appointed to serve in the tabernacle. He was a musical composer, and 1 Chronicles 25.2 tells us that he acted as a prophet as he composed these songs for Israel. He wrote Psalms 50 and 73 through 83. This one here, Psalm 83, being the last in the list of the psalms that he wrote. But as he writes this psalm, we aren't told exactly what the circumstances are for him writing this. You'll notice there, it just says, a psalm of Asaph. So what is the context here? What's going on? How do we understand Psalm 83? Well, some commentators connect this psalm with 2 Chronicles 20 and the victory that was given to Judah in Jehoshaphat's time. But in 2 Chronicles 20, there are only three nations that are mentioned there. In 2 Chronicles 20, you have Moab, Ammon, and Edom. Only three nations that are mentioned there. Others see this, Psalm 83, as a representation of all of the enemies who would come against Israel over time. Seeing this as the constant danger that Israel would live under throughout their history. So that whenever they were under attack, they could pull out this psalm and they could read it and be reminded of what they are to do when war breaks out, when they are under attack. Essentially, a war oracle. Praying that God would bring the constant opposition to an end. Once and for all. Then others see Psalm 83 as a confederation of ten enemies who conspire together to wipe out Israel. Seeing this as not yet fulfilled, but with a future fulfillment. This is how I view this psalm. Not that we're living in this time, 
I'm not saying what is happening now in Israel is the fulfillment of Psalm 83. But this psalm helps us to understand why Israel is at war again. Verses 6-8, through Asaph tells us of a collection of ten enemies who are set against Israel to wipe them out. So I believe the context here is not something that happened in Asaph's day, but is a prophecy that will come true in the future. Walt Kaiser says of Psalm 83, it is a prayer addressed to our Lord, but it also has the marks of a prophecy as well. But, however, one takes this psalm either as representing all of the nations who come against Israel, Israel over time or as a future prophecy as we look at this psalm we're going to see this psalm for what it is it's a prayer the psalm here is a prayer it's a prayer for God not to forget Israel but for God to act so that the nations will know that he is God who is over all the earth I love what Alexander McLaren says about this psalm. He says this, The world is up in arms against God's people, and what weapon has Israel? Nothing but prayer. Nothing but prayer. But is there any better place to be when enemies are surrounding and God's people are under attack than to be on our knees before the Lord in prayer? There is no better weapon. And that's what Asaph is doing here in our psalm. And so as we look at this psalm here this morning, we're going to break it down into two parts. First, we're going to see a plea for God's awareness. And then second, we'll see a plea for God's action. A plea for God's awareness and then a plea for God's action. So let's look at our first point here. A plea for God's awareness. Look again at verse 1. Notice what it says there. O God, do not remain quiet, do not be silent, and O God, do not be still. Notice how Asaph begins this psalm. He addresses it to God. This is the Hebrew name for God, Elohim. That's what he uses here. And then he says again in verse 1, Do not be silent, and O God... To which Asaph then uses a shortened form of Elohim, El, there to refer to God. This is important to note. Elohim and El, he uses. It's important for us to understand this because Asaph will use two more names for God at the end of this psalm, which we will see when we get there. But notice what Asaph is asking for God to do at the beginning of the psalm. He asks God three things in verse 1. Notice what it says there. Do not remain quiet, do not be still, and do not be silent. Now, what did Asaph know as he prays to God in a time when enemies are attacking Asaph knew that if God remained quiet and that he was silent and still, then what would happen to Israel? They would be destroyed. They would be destroyed. You see, when the enemy surrounds, it's easier for us to do what? To doubt God. To doubt God. Even to rebuke Him. 
for being quiet and, and silent and still. But what is Asaph's prayer? Notice what Asaph says there. He's not doubting God. He's not here rebuking God. Instead, he is fully dependent upon God. He knows that the only hope of Israel's victory is that God will act. God must act. He says nothing of weapons. He says nothing of armies. He says nothing of other nations coming to their aid. He knows that Israel is fully dependent upon God in order to win the victory. It's God. You and I living in America, we really have no understanding of what it's like. To have an enemy surrounding you to be in real danger of annihilation. There are believers in the world today who are facing enemies. Real enemies. Enemies who want Christians annihilated. Wiped off the face of the earth. And if and when that comes our way, what is our weapon against our enemies? It's prayer. Prayer. Total dependence upon God. Just like Asaph did here. In Psalm 83. Look at verse 2. Notice what he says there. Asaph now tells us of the situation. He says, For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. Notice how Asaph describes these enemies. He says they are your enemies. See that there? For behold, your enemies, O God, these are your enemies. We might ask, yeah, but I, I thought Israel was under attack. They are under attack. But when God's people are under attack, it is because those people are attacking God. They're ultimately enemies of God. These enemies in Psalm 83, they make an uproar or a commotion. It has the idea of, of roaring or being agitated. They're roaring against Israel. They're agitated with them. And then notice how Asaph describes them in the second part of verse 2. He says, and those who hate you. That's not Israel that he's referring to. That's God that he's referring to. These enemies of God's people hate who? They hate God. They hate Him. And they have exalted themselves. And the picture here is of them lifting up their heads as if they're on the move and nothing is going to stop them. They're arrogant. And what Asaph is saying here is that they hate God so much that they have boldly focused their hatred on God's people to try and get rid of them. So what do they do? Notice verse 3. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They make plans. This here is, is crafty plans, shrewd plans against God's people. Those who are God's treasured ones. 
That phrase there, treasured ones, in the Hebrew is literally your hidden ones. Your hidden ones. That is the people whom God hides and cherishes and protects. Your people, O God, they are after. They are making plans against. Remember, they're after God's people because they're after who? They're after God. Well, what else do these enemies do? Look at verse 4. They have said, Come and let us wipe out as a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. Ever heard that before? Sound familiar? How about the president of the United Arab Republic in 1967 who said, our basic aim is the destruction of Israel? Or how about Haman in the book of Esther? Or Adolf Hitler? Or Hamas today? It's exactly what they're saying. That is what these nations want to do. They want Israel wiped off the face of the earth. One commentator paraphrased the words of Psalm 83.4 and he said it this way, Let us exterminate the whole race that there may not be a record of them on the face of the earth. That's what the enemies of God are after. That's their goal. It's what these nations want to do. And that is what many nations throughout history have been wanting to do with Israel. In fact, James Montgomery Boyce said this, In all of recorded history, there has never been a people so encircled by foes or as persecuted as the Jews have been. Yet surprisingly, the Jews have prospered. In 1836, a world census indicated that there were more than 3 million Jews living in many countries. A later A century later, in 1936, in spite of severe persecutions in which many Jews were killed, particularly in Russia, a second census indicated that the Jewish world population had risen to 16 million, an increase of 13 million in a century. The Nazis killed more than 6 million Jews, but today there are more Jews in the world than before the Nazi era. The only explanation for this growth, Boyce says, is that the hand of God has been on this people and that He has blessed them. It's the only explanation. It's true. God's hand has been on them because God made a promise all the way back in Genesis with Abraham. He made a promise. But if God's people are gone then God's promise fails and God is no longer to be trusted. You see what's going on here? It's an attack against God. Notice verse 5. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against you they make a covenant. These nations that he will tell us about in verses 6-8, through will come together with one mind in order to fulfill their words of verse 4. To wipe out Israel. That's their plan. That's what they want to do. And again, notice, in the second line of verse 5, who is this against? Notice what it says there. Against you, God, they make a covenant. This is against God. 
What will they do? They'll make a covenant with each other. Alan Ross tells us, in the ancient world, it was commonly believed that in defeating a nation, the God of that nation would be defeated. And the God of the victors would prove to be superior. See, this is a spiritual battle. There's something spiritual that's going on here. They want their false gods to be the victor while the one true God be defeated. Now, who are these nations that make this covenant with each other? Well, Asaph tells us in verse 6, notice what he says there, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek and Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria, also has joined with them, they have become a help to the children of Lot. Now, you have these nations or people groups that are mentioned here. Edom, who are the descendants of Esau, who were south of Israel. If you can picture in your head a map of Israel there, Edom was down south of Israel. Then you had the Ishmaelites, descendants of, or descendants of Ishmael, who were southeast of Israel. Notice these first two are descendants of brothers who were not chosen. Then you have Moab, who are descendants of Lot, who were east of Israel. You had the Hagrites, who lived east of the Jordan River. Gabal, a Phoenician city north of Israel. Ammon, who were also descendants of Lot, they're also east of Israel. Amalek, descendants of Esau, who were south of Israel. Philistia, who lived southwest of Israel, Israel, where Gaza is today. Tyre, who's up north of Israel, best known as the area where Jezebel came from. And Assyria, which was northeast of Israel. And was not a dominant power at the time that Asaph was writing this, but who joins to help the children of Lot in verse 8. And it seems that the children of Lot, which would be Moab and Ammon, are leading the charge here. With Assyria joining them and helping them. But here's the thing. If you didn't follow all of that, here is what Asaph is telling us. Enemies are on the northwest, the north, the northeast, the east, the southeast, the south, and the southwest. And where is Israel located? On the Mediterranean Sea, which would mean no one's west of them. What's Asaph saying here? He's telling us that Israel is surrounded on all sides. All sides are enemies seeking to destroy these people. They're surrounded. And it seems like no one would be able to survive an attack like this. Things don't look good. At least not from a worldly perspective, right? Doesn't look good. In fact, notice at the, very, the, the end of uh, verse 8. The very end of verse 8. What does Asaph say there? You see that word? Selah. Selah. 
that's inspired, that's put there by the writer. We should read Selah's. What does it mean? What does Selah mean? It means to pause. To pause. Why pause in a, in a song like this? Well, we aren't exactly sure why, but some believe that this pause is there for a musical interlude or a solo to play during the song, as Asaph has composed it. But others would say that it's a pause for mental reflection on what was just said. And what was just said? Do things look good for Israel? No. Surrounded on all sides. Seems like it's over. Charles Spurgeon said, There was good reason for a pause when the nation was in such jeopardy. And yet it needs faith to make a pause. For unbelief is always in a hurry. It takes faith to pause. Pause and to consider. <laughs> Doesn't look good. But who do we cry out to? Oh, we cry out to God. To the one true God. Boyce says, this is an example of a pause well placed. For it is important for us to reflect on the terrible persecutions of these ancient people of God before going on to the prayer that God might judge their enemies. It's good for us to stop and to ponder this and to think about the situation that they're in. That enemies have surrounded them. Notice what Asaph does next. Asaph has just given a, a plea for God's awareness. But now we look at our second point, what we'll call a plea for God's action. He's calling for God to act. Look at verse 9. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin at the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. This is amazing. Asaph now turns his prayer from asking God to be aware of the situation to now acting by destroying Israel's enemy. And notice on what basis he makes his appeal. He makes his appeal based upon what God has done before to protect his people. And specifically in the first part of verse 9, he appeals to what God did at Midian in Judges 6-8. through He's referring there to Gideon's great victory when he had only 300 men. You remember that? No, dwindle it down. Come on. Oh, yeah, but God, we, we got to, you know, take them out. <laughs> yep, keep dwindling it down. <laughs> 300. Perfect. Now go. 300. They defeated the Midians with, you want to hear the weapons they had? Trumpets, pitchers, and torches. That's all they needed. Why? Because who did they have? 
They had God on their side. They had God. Then he turns to another victory in Judges 4 where Deborah and Barak are victorious. When Sisera, the leader of the Canaanites, was killed by Jael in the, in, in the tent. When she drove a tent peg through his head. You remember that? Yeah, come sleep here. You can stay here. And then takes a tent peg. Drives it through his head. And then they captured Jabin and destroyed him. And in verse 10 it says, who became as dung for the ground. Why? They didn't have a proper burial. He just left them to die. There's no proper burial for them. But in both of these cases, God won the victory for His people. Then in verse 11, Asaph again points back to Judges 7 and 8 and he says, Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb and all their princes like Zeba and Zal- Zalmunna. These were Midianites. Midianite leaders and kings who were captured and who were killed. But notice what they had said in verse 12. Notice what it says there. Who said, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. What are the pastures of God? The land. It's the land. What did they want? They wanted to destroy Israel and to take the land. Sound familiar? It's been going on throughout the history of Israel because it's an attack on our faithful God who made a promise to Abraham. That his descendants would live where? In the land. In the land. And so Asaph here is saying, God, please act in the future of Israel just as you have acted in the past by protecting them. Listen, reminders are good, aren't they? We need reminders. Because we're often prone to forget. To forget all the things that our God has done in the past. That's why we have an entire Old Testament and a New Testament to remind us of what God has done for His people throughout history. And even in our own personal lives, we need reminders of what God has done for us. When God acts and God does something in your life, write it down. Go back. Read it again. Be reminded. Husbands and wives, talk to each other about the things that God has done in your life, in your family. Remind each other. We need those reminders. We need to remind ourselves that our God is faithful. He's a faithful God. And therefore, we can always trust in Him. 
Well, Asaph has more to say about what he desires for God to do with Israel's enemies. Look at verse 13. Notice what he says there. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Notice how how personal Asaph gets here in verse 13. He says, oh my God. Back in verse 1, what does he say there? Oh God. But now it's, oh my God. My personal God. The God in whom I know. The God in whom I trust. The God in whom I love. And you can hear the plea of Asaph as he now pleads for God to take care of Israel's enemies. He wants God to make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. And the imagery here is like a tumbleweed that's blown through the desert. We're living in California. We lived out in the high desert. And when the Santa Ana winds would come, it was an east wind that would come It would blow tumbleweeds. Dead, dried out tumbleweeds all over the place. That's the imagery here. God, move them on. Remove them from their lands and and blow them away. And really what Asaph is praying for God to do here is to, to curse their enemies, to drive them away forever. Then he prays for God to use fire in a storm. Fire that would burn and cause their enemies to run away. One commentator says, the effect of all this on the enemies would be that it would shake their confidence completely for they would realize that they were not simply taking on a storm God, but the sovereign God who controls all nature. And that's what Asaph is praying here. God, help them to understand who they're really against. It's not us, although it is. But God, it's against you. Help them to realize this. Asaph wants Israel's enemies to know that they're taking on not Israel's military, but they're taking on the God of the universe. Then notice verse 16. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. This seems kind of odd here, doesn't it? Fill their faces with dishonor. Why? So that they may seek your name, O Lord. I thought Asaph wanted Israel's enemies to be destroyed. He does. Look at verse 17. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever and let them be humiliated and perish. But it's amazing that even though he desires for them to be destroyed, there is still compassion for them. There's still compassion for them. And right there in verse 16, he gives us a purpose clause as to what this may all lead to. That they may seek your name, O Lord. You see the gospel woven right in there. 
Does he want them destroyed and for Israel to be at peace? Yes, of course he does. And yet at the same time, he wants them to see the power of God on display and for them in the midst of the destruction that comes upon them, for them to call on the name of the one true God and be saved. Doesn't that sound like our Savior? Who in Matthew 5.44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and what? Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. You see, who did Asaph want to fight the battle and win the battle? He wanted God to do it. He wanted God to do it. Not Israel and not himself. His trust was fully and completely in God as he asked for God to act. Now, this here is what we call an imprecatory prayer. This is an imprecatory prayer. Is it right for us to pray an imprecatory prayer like this? To pray for judgment upon an enemy? Is it right to pray for the overthrow of tyrants and those who persecute us? Is it right to pray for justice on behalf of those who are oppressed? Is it right? It is. It is. How do we know? It's modeled for us right here in Scripture. We can pray this prayer. But listen, we don't pray imprecatory prayers out of rage or vengeance for our enemies or with any kind of selfish motives. Because remember what God has told us. Romans 12, 19. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Vengeance belongs to God. We can pray for judgment. We can pray for our enemies to be destroyed. And yet at the same time, we have compassion, longing for them to come to know the Savior. We don't pray it with personal vengeance or with selfish motives. We pray it trusting in our Lord. We pray imprecatory prayers, understanding that we want God's will to be done, which in turn causes our hearts to trust in Him. One commentator says, the imprecatory prayers in the Psalms are not expressions of unbridled rage and vengeance made in a moment of passion, but they're carefully crafted expressions of trust in what God has already promised He would do. And by singing or praying these expressions, they form hearts of trust, even if, or perhaps better, especially if the worshiper doesn't exactly feel trust at that moment. It's to help us to turn our trust to the Lord. God, it's all in your hands. Let me ask you, have you ever prayed the prayer, come Lord Jesus? You ever prayed that? You know that that in a sense is an imprecatory prayer? 
That's an imprecatory prayer. Why? Because what will happen the next time the Lord comes? Judgment. Judgment is coming. And so in a sense, we're praying for Christ to come and to judge this world. Why would we pray that? Because we're praying that God's will would be done. We're praying that in light of knowing what God's will is and for God to be glorified. That's why we pray that. And that's Asaph here in our text. He knows that God's will is to protect and to save Israel, which means that God will take out their enemies. One commentator says, these singers of the ancient people were all inspired supremely with a passion for the honor of God. That's what this is here. It's passion for the honor of God. God, that your name would be on display. That your name would be glorified in the world. But at the same time, there's compassion that's shown. There's compassion for the enemies of Israel to come to know the one true God. Now notice what he says there in verse 18. He says that they may know that you alone whose name is the Lord are the most high over all the earth. Who is the they there? It's the enemies of God. The enemies of God. And what Asaph desires is for God's enemies to know that he alone is the God, not just of Israel, but the God of the whole world. And who is this God? Notice Asaph tells us who it is. Whose name is the Lord. In Hebrew, that is Yahweh. That's Yahweh. God's name. It's who He is. The one true God. The God who revealed Himself to Moses and said, I am who I am. Yahweh. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The one true God. That's who He is. And He tells us there, notice, the Most High. The Most High over all the earth. The most high there in Hebrew is the word Elion. One commentator says, the divine title most high pictures God as the exalted ruler of the universe who vindicates the innocent and judges the wicked. He started off with, O God, Elohim, and O God, El, in verse 1, and he ends with Yahweh and Elion. The one true God who is over all the earth. That's who Asaph wants the world to know. And he wants the world to know that Yahweh is the one true God who is over not just our enemies, but over the whole world. And listen, church, the whole world will know this, right? Philippians chapter 2. What does it tell us there? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In closing, you might ask, why all this attention on Israel? Why all this attention on Israel? I mean, I thought that Israel has rejected God since they've rejected the Messiah. 
glad you asked. And they have. They have rejected the Messiah. But here's the thing. Even though they are unfaithful, God is still faithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. But what has God also promised of Israel? Take your Bibles and turn over to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. This is a great, great passage of Scripture that tells us of God's plan for Israel. And notice in Romans 11, beginning in verse 11, Paul says this, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? That is Israel. May it never be, but by their transgression, salvation has come to who? The Gentiles, you know who that is? It's us. It's come to us. Why? To make them jealous. To make them jealous. Now, verse 12, now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen, who's that? It's the Jews. And save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And then look over at verse 25. He says, for I want you, brethren, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And notice this in verse 26. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What's he saying there? God made a promise. And He's faithful to His promise. You see, Israel is in an uproar right now. But there will be peace in Israel one day. When will that be? When they become jealous of us. When they become jealous of us Gentiles who have received the Messiah. And they're going to say, Hey, wait a minute. He's our Messiah. He's a Jew. He's one of us. He's our Savior. 
And they'll welcome Jesus in as their Messiah and they will trust in him and all Israel will be saved. And they'll live peacefully in the land that God promised to Abraham. Why? Because God is not just a covenant-making God, but God is a covenant-keeping God. And so as you watch the news, remember why this is all happening. It's an attack on our God who is to be trusted because He is a covenant-keeping God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this prayer of Asaph and his trust in You. As it looks like Things are really, really bad with enemies completely surrounding Israel. You made a promise, a promise to Abraham. And you are faithful to keep your promises. Father, help us to learn from Asaph in times where we are persecuted for you. Lord, that we wouldn't go out and try and win the battle all on our own, but that we would trust in You. That we would fall on our knees in prayer in total dependence upon You who is the one true God. We thank You that You have chosen us, that You have called us to be Your own. We thank you that the gospel went forth to the Gentiles and that through that amazing gospel, we have been saved. We thank you for the Messiah, the Messiah whom Israel rejected, but the Messiah whom we love and receive and trust in fully. We thank you that he came and lived a perfect life and that he went to a cross and died on that cross to save sinners like us. We thank you that he rose again on the third day and that he lives today and that he will come back to make all things right, to sit on his glorious throne, to rule and to reign over his perfect kingdom. Lord, we rejoice when we think about that time that is to come. But until that time comes, Lord, help us to be salt and light in this world, to faithfully take the gospel message to the world, to even our enemies, that they might come to know you. Lord, may you continue to work your perfect, sovereign plan. And we do pray for the peace of Israel, we pray that your perfect plan would be accomplished there. That we would trust you and trust you always. We pray this in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.